Welcome back to Lower Decks, a Star Trek Discovery podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman, and we were out of groceries this morning, but fortunately, my collection of Star Trek Pez dispensers still had enough candy to get me going. <laughs> Aw, um, and I'm Valerie Hoagland, and I think I've said on a on a previous episode, I think it was our last episode actually, that I was gifted a Star Trek Cats book. We talked about this a little bit, Glenn. You remember? Oh yeah, I'm very excited. Well, I just got a Christmas present, a little tiny thing from some friends in Seattle, Nerd Capital, and they didn't know I had this book, but they sent me two Star Trek Cats pins. So I think that what used to be, you know. I used to get a lot of weird socks. That was like my shtick when I was 12. I loved weird socks. And I've been getting them as presents ever since. This podcast has changed that. It's Star Trek now. We get Star Trek stuff every time. <laughs> well, this is fantastic. Well, together in weird socks and Star Trek cat pins and with Pez dispensers, uh, we run a <laughs> mediocre speakeasy in the Jeffries tubes. And today we're talking about the Deep Space Nine episode, Duet. Duet was the 18th episode of DS9's first season. It was written by Peter Allen Fields from a story by Lisa Rich and Gene Kerrigan Falke. And it was directed by James L. Conway. Well, this is one of my absolute favorite episodes, not just of Deep Space Nine, but of all Trek. And I'm really excited that I get to talk about it with you today, Valerie. Is that true, Glenn? It's one of your favorites? Yes, absolutely. I, I you know, there are almost 800 episodes of Star Trek. So it is difficult to think offhand what one's top five or top 10 might be. And perhaps we can do an episode about that someday. Oh, I but, just thought of three immediately. Well, I just suck then. <laughs> but yes, this is surely among my top five of all Deep Space Nine and, and, and probably makes it into my top 10 of all of all Trek. I think it's a some I think there are marvelous performances here. And I think that this is Deep Space Nine doing what it does best, which is exploring the, the nature of evil and, and showing us villainy, but also showing us redemption. Yeah, although not a ton of that in this episode could have used some more. My biggest question, Glenn, is why are we talking about a Deep Space Nine episode in the middle of Discovery season? <laughs> right. Well, we offer an episode commission service uh, really for our, our Patreon supporters, though anyone can take advantage of it. And uh, in this case, a very generous patron hired us to do this episode. Uh, and I say very generous, not just regular generous, because this this patron, the same patron, also commissioned an episode for Brandon and I to cover on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast as well. Yeah. And um, so this is the part where we say we never really said anything before, but we do have a Patreon account. And there are already a lot of great episodes up there, including uh, a Buffy episode that we covered and an original series episode. So those are both really fun, a lot more fun, the normal kind of color than than what you're going to get in this episode, because Deep Space Nine is a serious business. Right. And if, if this isn't your first podcast, you, you probably already know all about Patreon. And in, in short, it's an online service that allows listeners to financially support the show. And Valerie's given you some of the highlights of what's already on there. And of course, there's more to come. I think that we'll get some Enterprise up there eventually and some more TNG, some more TOS. This is also where Brandon and I discuss classic science 
science fiction stories. We did a Vonnegut story recently, and we're getting ready to do a piece by H.G. Wells. And we've got lots more great stuff planned for 2018. Yeah, Glenn, those are really, really fun things to be covering. I've enjoyed listening to them um, as well. And one other really cool feature of of the Patreon account is that if we meet our subscriber goals, uh, we have fun rewards. And so right now, two of those rewards that we're hoping to do are an online hangout with our subscribers at the end of Discovery's first season. And as Glenn mentioned, covering some more um, Star Trek episodes from other series, or maybe even some movies, if that's what people are interested in during the off season once Discovery is off air again for its next break. Yeah, and I'd be real excited to do all of those things. I'd, I'd, I'd be especially excited about hanging out online with some of our, our listeners and some of our some of our patrons. But I think that's enough self-promotion and shilling for today. So should we get into this awesome episode of Star Trek, Valerie? Yes, please. I don't I don't like self-promotion. <laughs> Academics are not good at it. <laughs> We open in Ops, where Kira and Dax are talking about being childhood troublemakers while they work. And this is, I think, a very clever way to open the episode because it reminds us that Kira is at her core a troublemaker, that she is someone who does whatever she wants regardless of the rules. And, and, and that component of her character is going to drive the action of this episode. You know, I hadn't really thought about it that way. My focus was a little bit more, and maybe this is too soon because we're not even into the episode yet. Well, one, this scene sets up, right, this kind of fly on the wall, like, this is what's happening when they're just doing their daily operations. They're chit-chatting, and who doesn't want to chit-chat with Dax? But I thought it kind of served to give us a window into a time in Kira's life before she started fighting, before her life got horrible, that she did have a time for her childhood and that she is able to remember it fondly. And I thought that was kind of beautiful given what gets addressed for the rest of the episode. Yeah, I think that really works with the arc that Kira is going to go through in this episode where she has to, she's going to plunge the depths of her anger and all these negative emotions that she has. But to begin with getting a glimpse of her in, in kind of an idyllic state, a child, her, her childhood here at the opening of the episode might work really well with where she ends up at the end. That's a, that's a really great observation. But we are literally at this point, 10 seconds into the episode. <laughs> so let's get into the kind of driving action or the, uh, the inciting incident of our story. A Coperian freighter arrives at the station and it's carrying a passenger who needs medical attention. He has Kalanora syndrome, which is a condition that resulted from a mining accident at a Cardassian labor camp on Bajor. We learned that this camp is called Galatep and that Kira helped to liberate it when she was a resistance soldier during the Cardassian occupation of Bajor. Have we seen Coberians? You said this was a Coberian ship. Do, do we know anything about Coberians in the rest of the Star Trek world? Or is this a, a new alien that Deep Space Nine has made up? Yeah, the Coberians are, are new. They're, they're new for Deep Space Nine. This is actually the first episode that they get mentioned in, though we encounter them, I think, several more times in Deep Space Nine and even a couple of times in Voyager. And we learn later on in this episode in kind of a, a throwaway line that they are members of the Federation. So this is a Federation species. So, okay, that's actually really interesting. So, you know, first season of Deep Space Nine, got some new aliens being introduced. Um, I'm always a big fan of that. But maybe we should take a minute because some of our Discovery listeners might not have watched Deep Space Nine. Some of our longtime Trek fan listeners might be um, appalled to hear that. But maybe just real quick, we should set the stage for a lot of the aliens we just mentioned and planets we just mentioned in this teaser to, to ground listeners that might not be familiar. Yeah, that's a great idea. So maybe let's start with what Deep Space Nine is. This is the 
only Star Trek show that doesn't take place on a starship. Deep Space Nine is a space station that more or less orbits the planet Bajor. Bajor is not a member of the Federation. And in fact, until recently, Bajor was a planet that via conquest and occupation had been a part of the Cardassian Empire. Cardassians, uh, just to keep it real simple, are the Klingons or the Romulans of Deep Space Nine. They're the big non-democratic, non-enlightened enemy that the Federation faces in this show. Um, yeah, so for, for listeners who are unfamiliar with a lot of the alien species we just mentioned, the two uh, big players in this episode and in Deep Space Nine are the Cardassians and the Bajorans. And the relationship between Cardassia and Bajor uh, with Cardassia occupying Bajor and ruling over the Bajorans really let Star Trek explore themes that that maybe the real world analog to would be relevant to the Second World War. And in this episode in particular, as Glenn mentioned, we're talking about a camp, a labor camp at Galatep. Um, this would be similar to a concentration camp uh, in World War II history to kind of set the stage for the seriousness of the topics being addressed in this episode such as war crimes and genocide. Right. And so when Kira hears that there's a passenger on board with this specific medical condition, Kira assumes that this person must be a Bajoran who had been enslaved at the camp. And so she she wants to go see this patient. But the patient turns out to be a Cardassian, one of her planet's former occupiers. Shocked and angered, Kira calls Odo to send a security team and we go to the opening credits. Well, we get a little reprieve here for just a few moments, Valerie, before we do get real deep into this extremely heavy episode. So I just want to take the opportunity to comment on the opening theme here, since this is something that I do every time we <laughs> encounter a new theme. I can't seem to not comment on it. But I will say that Deep Space Nine's theme, while I like it quite a bit, is actually probably my least favorite opening theme. Yeah, it's not my favorite. Um, I don't want to upset diehard Deep Space Nine fans. It's so long. It's very long. Oh, that's interesting. I wonder if it actually is longer than other themes, perhaps because Deep Space Nine does actually have a larger ensemble cast than most of the shows do, or if it just feels longer because the cadence is slow and because this is a opening credit sequence in which we are not following a ship moving around, but in fact, are we are the camera that is simply taking a tour of the station. <laughs> yeah, it's not very exciting, this opening. <laughs> You're right, the music is slow and somber. It's very serious. It's a serious show. It deals with heavy stuff, as we're going to see, and the credits reflect that. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think we can we can compare it to the Voyager theme, right, which is running at the same time as Deep Space Nine, which is actually my favorite theme, which has such an upbeat and optimistic, really hopeful sound to it. And I think I just prefer that to the somberness of Deep Space Nine's theme. But it really it does set the right tone for the show that it is. And it really does differentiate itself from TNG, which was still on air when Deep Space Nine started and Voyager. You know what I think this theme really needs, Valerie, is some lyrics. I think that would really spruce it up a little bit. Oh, I mean, you're making fun of me, Glenn, because I think I actually said on air in one of our first episodes that I 
did make up lyrics to the Deep Space Nine theme, it really helps me get through it. But I'm looking for some new ones, out with the old and with the new. So if people have, uh, if people want to write any uh, lyrics to go to the Deep Space Nine theme song, I would be very interested to read them. I'm really looking forward to this impromptu and unexpected poetry competition that we're going to be hosting on our website uh, this week. I'm really excited to hear what people come up with. I think that'll be fantastic. And you can send us the lyrics as text, but I think we also would love to, uh, to hear you singing your own lyrics. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's not a theme that really lends itself. You really have to hold words for a long time in an unnatural way. So, you know, if someone does do this, I, I, I will be very excited. Well, maybe, maybe better yet, Valerie, if we, perhaps we should promise to select a winner and sing it ourselves on air. Oh, God. No, 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 no. Oh, nobody wants that, Glenn. Nobody (laughs) wants that. All right. Well, let's get out of the theme and let's get back into the the heart of the episode here. When we return from the credits, we are back at the face-off between Kira and this Cardassian man. Kira accuses him of being a war criminal. And in turn, he flees the infirmary and runs right into Odo's arms. Despite his objections and his protests, Odo sides with Kira at least a little bit here, and so he he puts the man in a cell until Kira's claim can be evaluated. Yeah, so Odo is a a regular cast member. He's the chief of security on Deep Space Nine, um, which is why Kira goes to talk to him immediately and why he has really ultimate authority over what's going to happen with this Cardassian. And yeah, just to reiterate, what we're dealing with here is we have... A disease that can only be contracted at this labor camp because of it. The only instances of it were as a result of a mining accident at that camp. So you were either enslaved at that camp, a Bajoran enslaved there against your will, subject to the atrocities of the camp, or you were a Cardassian perpetrator of those atrocities at that camp. So since he's Cardassian, this allows Kira to pretty solidly jump to the war criminal conclusion. Yeah, and in the next scene, she's going to make this case to Commander Sisko, who's the, the Federation officer who runs the station. Sisko wants to know if this Cardassian, who we can just who we can now just go ahead and call by his name, it's Maritza. Sisko wants to know if Maritza is on the Bajoran war crimes list. I think this in itself is a really neat, really interesting detail that Bajor has a list. Actually, in fact, we learned several lists of Cardassians who are wanted for war crimes. Yeah, and this is our first foray, too, in this episode into kind of understanding the really complicated politics. So the Cardassians have since obviously uh, left Bajor. They're no longer occupying it. And Deep Space Nine actually used to be a Cardassian station that the Federation has, has stepped in and now has control over. So this is all happening on a station that is neither Bajoran nor Cardassian, but that is caught up in the politics though is ultimately under Federation control. So Cardassians are very impassioned about what might happen to this prisoner. Bajorans are very impassioned about what might happen to this prisoner. But ultimately, it's the neutral third party that a case has to be made to. 
And we learn right away that Maritza is not on any of these Bajoran war crimes list. But but Kira doesn't care because he must be guilty of something for the reasons that you you previously stated, Valerie. But Cisco, the commander, the Federation commander, very much cares. And he reminds Kira and also us, the audience, that there are laws, there are rules and procedures that have to be followed in a civil society. You can't just arrest someone because of his or her identity with Without any actual proof of wrongdoing, and this is going to come full circle um, at the at the end of the episode, and is a central a central theme, and one that Kira understandably has a lot of trouble dealing with in this episode. She does, and she she really even starts to exhibit this trouble right here in this scene. She pushes back against Cisco, right? She can continues to argue her case. She makes the argument that, that you just made, where if this man has Kalonora syndrome, then he must have been at the labor camp. And if he was there, then he was simply by default a war criminal, because that labor camp, that forced labor camp, was a concentration camp in which people were being executed. And, and Kira goes on here, actually, to describe precisely how the Cardassians treated the Bajorans at Galatap in a, a really important speech in which Nana Visitor, the actress who plays Kira, makes an interesting acting choice. And, and so I think actually it might be useful and worthwhile here to read the speech before we talk about what I think some of those choices were, or really how she chose to deliver these lines. It's also just pretty grisly and really important for setting the stage for this morality play that we're about to watch. And, and, and the, lines, the line is this. First came the humiliation. Mothers raped in front of their children. Husbands beaten until wives couldn't recognize them. Old people buried alive because they couldn't work anymore. And Nana Visitor kind of screams some of this, where she's doing angry acting here. And I didn't really think that was a very good choice for how to deliver those lines. Interesting, Glenn. You know, I think I will say I'm just going to give my opinion on this scene and then I would love to hear how you would have maybe preferred it to be delivered. You know, I'm always interested in in how Star Trek is pushing boundaries. And here we have a first season episode of Deep Space Nine. It's a brand new show, still, you know, getting its sea legs. It's on air in 1993. And right in the beginning of this episode, we are explicitly confronting rape and murder and genocide. They, it's not just danced around, it is named right here within the first 10 minutes. So, you know, regardless of delivery, this is really intense and important television. Yeah, this is really heavy, really serious subject matter here. And Star Trek has dealt with the Holocaust before, it's dealt with Nazis before, it's dealt with war crimes before. But I don't think that, I think this is the first time that we've had the real horror of what genocide or enslavement really is like put into to speech on the show. And I think it's very moving and very powerful. And through a main character that lived through that as a victim. So we've dealt with all those topics on Star Trek before, but not with this lens, not with such a personal connection to to that pain and to those horrors delivered here through the first officer on our station. Right. When we've gotten this in Star Trek before, it's been the message has been, hey, you know, war crimes are bad, genocide bad, and we shouldn't do those things. And, and we get that message by examining 
the sort of guest alien, guest species, guest planet of the week engaged in such an activity. But here the focus is on what it's like to live through these experiences and how hard it is to move on from them. That's really the the theme here. Yeah, so all all the more moving, all the more personal, all the more powerful. That being said, Glenn, I think you mentioned you were unhappy with the delivery. Yeah. In my professional life, I work on the fall of the Roman Empire uh, as, a, as a historian of how warfare affects society. And the, the sources that I use are mostly sermons. They're also hagiographies, uh, which is saints' lives, letters, and some narrative sources. And so when I present my research to my peers, my colleagues at academic conferences, or when I'm talking about my research with students in classes that I'm teaching, I frequently have to read aloud to an audience texts with lines exactly like this. And I always have to think very carefully about how I want to deliver those lines. What is the tone I want to have when we're looking at this historical text, this historical source that I want us to think about together? And when I do this, I usually adopt a somber tone because I want my audience, whether they're students or colleagues, to know that we're talking about something that's very serious and that we're talking about real human beings who lived and were horribly brutalized by other human beings. So these are real people whose lives are worth remembering and whose awful experiences should be commemorated, that they, these people should not be forgotten. So when I was hearing Nana Visitor speak these lines in her angry acting, it just didn't seem right to me, because to me it felt like it was distracting from the important content of the lines that we've just talked about. Glenn, that's really interesting, although I want to trouble that with the fact that you didn't live that, right? You you are being respectful of those emotions when you're delivering them at conferences or to students in the, in the way that you choose to deliver them. I think that somebody who has lived through it is not choosing how they deliver it. They just have the emotion that they have, and her primary one right now is anger. So while it could be argued that maybe it's not the most effective choice for the audience— it might be the most accurate choice for the character. No, I think you're exactly right. This is precisely how Kira would deliver these lines, right? She is at her heart right now. She is an angry person. And ultimately, of course, that's actually what this episode is about. It is about Kira facing her own anger. And so I've come around to actually thinking that this is, in fact, a brilliant acting choice. And I really wondered, although I just watched this on Netflix, so I didn't have any extra scenes, I, I would love to know if if somewhere out there, there is footage of Nana Visitor doing a different read of these lines, doing a sorrowful read or a horrified read. I would love to compare them. I think it would be really, uh, really interesting uh, to see her working out how to deliver these lines, you know, as a professional actor. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there are. I know that she took this role very seriously. And in fact, she's commented that this is one of her favorite episodes, precisely because of the difficulty of the subject matter and getting to confront that as an actor. And um, she has this quote where she compares it to sitcoms deal with issues like, should I let Johnny stay out after midnight or not, which in its own way is important, but that she's very grateful to be tackling real social issues um, in this kind of otherworldly context where it's a little bit more okay to tackle them. So I, I'm, I have no doubt that she put a lot of thought and probably gave a lot of options for this scene. Yeah. And in the end, I think she absolutely nailed it. 
Well, th- this scene ends with Cisco wanting answers to the questions that this conundrum raises, right? This question of whether or not this Cardassian, Maritza, is necessarily guilty of a war crime simply by virtue of having been at this labor camp. And so we move right into a new scene in which Cisco speaks with Maritza in his cell. Now, Maritza here says that he doesn't have Kalinora, but rather he has a similar condition. And furthermore, he's never been to Bajor. And this scene is complicated by the fact that occupying a neighboring cell is a drunk or perhaps hungover Bajoran who yells for Odo to release him when he realizes that there is a Cardassian here and shouts, you're not keeping me in here with one of those. You know, Kira's anger is really representative of her people's anger that as a as a planet, as a people, as a society, all Bajorans are still processing this anger. Right. And, and ultimately, we're going to see how Kira grows with the, dealing with this anger in this episode and while, where and how other Bajorans do not. If we might take a fun break in the middle of the seriousness while I was watching, I was going, why does this Maritza guy, why does this Cardassian seem so evilly familiar? <laughs> and Glenn, I think you have the answer to that. Yeah, that's right. The actor who plays Maritza here is uh, named Harris Yulin. And I know him from this role, but also from his role in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where he is the head of the Watchers Council. Yeah, his character on Buffy is named Quentin Travers, which is like a, someone just sat in a room and was like, what does that, what's a name that sounds British? <laughs> um, <laughs> and came up with that. Yeah, so Harris Yulin's debut role on Buffy was as the head of the Watcher Council was in an episode where he decides to do this ritual called the Cruciamentum, which should give you an idea of <laughs> that it's bad. And he he ends this episode as the creepy and mean and cruel watcher guy that everybody gets mad at. And so he's he's got a creep acting vibe. He's it's he's good at it. Yeah. Also in this Buffy episode is Dominic Keating, the actor who plays Malcolm Reed in Star Trek Enterprise. So this is absolutely an episode of television that that you and I need to go cover on Patreon at some point. Everything's connected through Star Trek. I think we should do a new thing that's like not six degrees from Kevin Bacon, but six degrees from Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Six degrees might be too easy. We might have to might have to actually make it shorter than that. Uh, yeah, three that's degrees. True. Good point. Anyway, just some new ideas for some fun closing games. But uh, but uh, okay. So I took us off track. I wanted to talk about Harris Eulin for a second because I was like, why is he creepy and familiar? But let's get back to the plot, shall we? Yeah. Well, he's fantastic in this episode, and this is an episode that. Uh, does not have any fun diversions of its own. So I think uh, an occasional digression like that will be helpful for us emotionally (laughs) getting through this episode. And for the record, he was hard to identify without looking it up because he's in Cardassian makeup. And for those of you who aren't familiar, they're like kind of lizard men. Yeah, but his voice is so distinct and so good. I mean, it's just fantastic in this episode. It works so well. Well, in our next scene, we're in Cisco's office where Dr. Bashir is telling him that Maritza definitely has Kalinora syndrome and that he therefore must have been at Galatep. Their conversation is interrupted when the Bajoran Minister of State calls Cisco on the phone. The Minister of State is excited to get his hands on a Cardassian war criminal. But Cisco isn't sure that there's any legal justification for keeping Maritza in a cell, let alone for handing him over to the Bajorans. 
The minister counters by explaining that federation rules don't really matter in this case, that the Bajoran government is taking responsibility, and therefore Cisco shouldn't worry about getting in trouble. But of course, Cisco isn't worried about getting in trouble, right? He's, he's worried about doing the right thing. So the rules and the procedures, the very principles upon which federation law is founded, matter very much to him. Yeah, and this is really interesting in the context of the Discovery pilot. Were you thinking about that while you were watching? Yes, I absolutely was. It's a little bit harder to get behind, you know, what happens with Burnham in the first two episodes and the way she challenges her captain. Easy to get behind how Georgiou pushes back for the same reasons on the principles of the Federation. You know, we don't fire first. Here on Deep Space Nine, it's much more complicated because... Kira is a first officer of the station, and she's under a Federation officer, Commander Sisko, but she doesn't work for the Federation. So her obligations are different. Her obligation is to to Bajor. So we're seeing themes that are similar play out, but because not everyone is a member of the Federation, it's a lot more complicated. Yeah, this is a question of who has legal jurisdiction over this prisoner, over Maritza. But it is this is also a question, I think, of maybe more broadly, and this is the question that I think Trek is, is really asking here, is whether the victims of a crime should be the ones to decide who is guilty of the crime and also what the punishment should be. And, and, and you mentioned towards the top of our episode, Valerie, that Deep Space Nine really loves to take its cue from historical analogs uh, that we find in the Second World War. And, and here, I think that the writers are thinking about the famous trial of Adolf Eichmann, who was one of the perpetrators of the Holocaust, but who escaped Germany during the Second World War as the war was coming to a close and lived in Argentina for a decade or maybe even a little more than a decade under an assumed, under a fake identity with his family, but was eventually discovered and was brought to Israel to stand trial for his crimes. Yeah, no, Glenn, you're completely right. I was thinking about the same thing while I was watching this episode. Yeah, and as it happens, just kind of accidentally, I actually was was watching some of the footage of the Eichmann trial really just a few months ago as I was thinking about how to cover the Second World War, the Holocaust, and the creation of the State of Israel for my world history class, my survey class of, of, world, of modern world history. And it really struck me at the time, listening to these proceedings, and in particular, listening to Eichmann's defense of his actions— that his case really rested not so much on his factual innocence, this question of whether or not he actually was guilty of perpetrating the Holocaust, which he claimed that he was not. But his real legal argument was that the state of Israel has no jurisdiction in this matter, that if he's going to be tried for war crimes, he needs to be tried by a neutral third party or needs to be tried uh, in The Hague by the, the, the United Nations War Crimes Tribunal. And I think that's the question that Deep Space Nine is really taking up here. And what's really interesting, too, you know, when you're thinking about a question of jurisdiction, is the question of, is something owed to the victims? Is this something, I think a lot of Kira's argument in this episode is, maybe a neutral third party is the right thing to do, but we are owed this, this vengeance, or, you know, we are owed some sort of, I guess, reparation in seeking closure and justice. And that supersedes the fact that maybe the absolute morally right thing to do is to let the Federation handle it. 
And those are heavy questions that we are still dealing with today in a lot of different sociopolitical situations, um, that there are scholars devoted to answering these questions. So this is something that really feels like it will never lose relevance. Question of what is justice and what is vengeance or what's the distinction between them is of crucial importance all the time in our lives. It's it's crucial for us in our lives as individuals. I mean, even just thinking about in our daily lives, the things that we want justice or vengeance for can be, you know, things like having been cut in front of in a, in a line in the grocery store, for example. I mean, this, this is sort of small nature of these ethical and moral questions. But even big questions like this about war crimes and what is justice or what is vengeance has not left us. Even just in the last three months, the the war crimes tribunal that was investigating and trying cases of war crimes, genocidal war crimes in the Balkans in the 90s has only just now wrapped up. Uh, There were a number of really significant trials that happened late in 2017, including one trial in which the defendant, a Croatian general, upon being declared guilty of war crimes, swallowed poison in the court and died a few hours later because he wanted to deny his victims justice. Yeah. And that's I would like to return to that when we get to the close of this episode, because it's a really interesting contrast to what we eventually learn is actually happening here with our Cardassian, with our Maritza character. So let's keep that in the back of our the back of our minds. And thank you for giving those very relevant contemporary examples. You know, I wish this wasn't something that we were still dealing with, but but we are. And one thing that I think this episode does really well, you know, you just kind of gave the conclusion to those trials in the real world, right? This episode doesn't ever actually go to trial. And so it gets to grapple with questions of justice and vengeance and to maybe, you know, be pretty explicit about what it thinks is right without actually having to play out the consequences and come to a decision, which leaves us thinking about it and grappling with it ourselves, which was a fascinating choice for them. And I think the right one. Yeah, it's an absolutely brilliant choice. And that that is why I say this is one of my favorite Star Trek episodes. This, to me, is Trek at its best, asking difficult questions, showing us multiple sides of the argument or multiple ways to answer the question, but then leaving us with the question to ponder for ourselves. Well, this question of what are victims of crimes, what are victims of war crimes owed is the subject of the next scene where Cisco and Kira are on the promenade and they are arguing about who should handle the Maritza investigation. The Bajoran government, of course, wants Kira to do it, but Cisco wants Odo to do it as the neutral station security chief. And Kira here says that the Federation has no right telling us how to deal with our criminals. And Cisco reminds her that Maritza is not a criminal yet. Right now, Maritza is just a traveler under suspicion. But Kira begs Cisco to let her conduct the investigation. She owes it to the victims, she says, and it's important. It is of paramount importance that a Bajoran be in charge. And and Kira doesn't use this word here, Valerie, but what I hear her saying is that it's important for the Bajorans to have agency in this situation, that otherwise the Bajorans will simply be continuing to be victimized by yet another imperial power, even if in this case it's our good guys, the, the Federation. You know, I think I'm still grappling with whether or not 
Kira should lead this investigation. As you're probably about to say, Cisco ultimately decides that he's going to let Kira lead the investigation against kind of his initial arguments or judgments. And maybe I'll just throw it to you, Glenn. Do you think that was the right choice? You're right to say that this is a very difficult choice. And and I want to reiterate the historical analog here that in many ways, this, this really is thinking about Israel, the state of Israel, rather than the third party war crimes commission trying Nazi war criminals or suspected Nazi war criminals, maybe we should say. And the argument that Kira is making here is an argument that Israel made itself, which is that we have been victimized and we will not and that we will not be victimized again. We are going to take control of our own destiny. We are not going to sit by and let someone perpetrate a genocide or attempt to perpetrate a genocide against us again. And of course, we can see both sides of this argument that people need to feel safe. People need to feel secure. But we go back to this question of, is it vengeance or is it justice? If you are getting to put on trial people who you think may have done something wrong to you, how can you neutrally, how can you dispassionately evaluate the evidence in favor of or against that claim if you're so emotionally invested in it? I don't think that that's possible. And so I'm I'm not sure that Kira should be doing the investigation here. I, I, I think that... I think, as we're going to actually hear in this episode, we're going to hear Dax say in this episode that for this to have any meaning, it has to be justice. It cannot be vengeance. And I think that if Kira is involved, if the Bajorans are handling this case themselves, whatever their motives might be, it is always going to have that taint, that hint of vengeance getting in the way of whether or not this is truly justice. And she does struggle with that for the vast majority of the episode. Um, and her character continues to struggle with it on the show. I think what's so hard about this is the agency argument that we need to have agency in this. We were the victims and, and we are owed that agency argument is very powerful and very difficult to reject as Cisco ultimately chooses not to. Though I agree with you that there is, like you said, as Dax will argue, there is no way for Kira to emotionally remove herself from completely from this situation. And where you point out that that means her investigation is biased, which I'm sure is also true. What I'm more concerned about is the damage that Kira is kind of doing to herself through what we'll see will be repeated conversations with Maritza that you know, bring up a lot of this emotion for her over and over and really eat at her as she conducts the investigation. And that is just a really not a healthy thing for her, even though it is a process she, you know, feels and maybe she does need to go through. It's extremely damaging to her own psyche. Yeah, Kira's going to get to a pretty dark place before this episode is over, though I think ultimately this is a story about how she comes out of it, or at least moves into perhaps a different dark place, a, a, a better dark place, maybe a dim place, we'll call it. Uh, we'll see when we when we get there. But we should move into our, our next scene, uh, where we are back in Odo's security office, where... Odo is giving Kira the rundown of what he's already discovered, because as you say, Kira is now going to handle the investigation. Odo has found that Moritz's story checks out. Uh, he lives and he works where he says he does, even though he lied about having this illness. 
And at this point, Kira goes into the holding cells to interrogate Maritza to find out who he is. And and this is where we begin to get the real heart of the episode, which is these conversations between Kira and Maritza. And and these are just so awesome. The the acting from both of them is so powerful. Uh, my recaps can't possibly do these scenes any justice. Yeah. Uh, but I but I hope I can set up some discussion points for us. Listeners just have to go go have a watch or go have a rewatch and, you know, sit sit in the pain of these situations themselves. So Kira's first move here is to confront Maritza with Bashir's medical diagnosis. And Maritza doesn't deny it, doesn't hide it. He immediately admits that, yes, he was at Galatep, but he says that he wasn't anybody important. He wasn't uh, he wasn't even a guard. He was just a file clerk. But he does deny that there were actually any atrocities at Galatep. Gold Darheel, the Cardassian general in charge of the labor camp, started the rumors about brutality at Galatep. And he did this because his thinking was, why bother with actual mass murders when just the reports of such incidents would have the same effect? Yeah, and this is the first instance in this episode where we see how convincing Maritza is. He's very good. Like, his arguments do start to fall apart a little bit as we move farther into the episode. But at this point, I found him very believable. Yes, I believe everything that he's saying. And that's really, you know, that and that's part of what this episode is trying to do. It is trying to get us to listen to arguments that we really know that we know we don't care for, but to listen to them empathetically to, to, to side with Maritza to some, to some extent to, to, to put ourselves in his shoes. And at this point, I think a little bit more so in this scene than Kira, he really has, he's on more solid footing in terms of argument at this stage. Yeah. Though he's, he's about to say something that's, that's pretty awful. He, he criticizes the Bajorans for allowing themselves to be victimized. And when Kira reminds him that they eventually beat the Cardassians, Maritza says that leaving was a political decision and that the Bajorans didn't actually beat them. So he, he even really wants to rob Kira of the satisfaction of, of having overthrown their conquerors. They're driven off their occupiers. Yeah, he really just wants to make her feel, I mean, he's almost gaslighting her. He wants to make her feel like everything that is important to her didn't actually happen or didn't actually matter. And that's some powerful manipulation. Yeah, gaslighting is right. I didn't think about it in those terms, but that is exactly what's happening here. But their their conversation concludes with Maritza bringing up this question of justice and, and vengeance. And he tells Kira that she's not interested in the truth or in justice. All she wants is vengeance. And, and we're going to get some more exploration of that as we continue. Well, we continue in Cisco's office where Cisco is talking on the phone with Gol Dukat, another Cardassian general. Uh, Dukat wants to know why his citizen is being illegally detained. And, and this scene is really just here to show us the external pressures that are operating on Cisco and to remind us that there is a wider context to the play that we are watching. But we also get Goldicott denying that the occupation was brutal or that the Cardassians even did anything criminal when they controlled Bajor. And, and, and this is going to be important for trying to understand Maritza at the end of the episode, what his motives are here. Our next scene is, is another interlude between conversations uh, between Kira and Maritza. 
And this scene is taking place on Deep Space Nine's promenade where Kira is mulling over Maritza's assertion that all she wants is vengeance. And, and Dax is there to talk to her about this, this question, about this problem. And Kira says that she does want to punish Maritza because it will give Bajor some satisfaction. And here's where Dax gets to draw on her centuries of life experiences and, and cautions that if the Bajorans punish Maritza without reason, it won't mean anything, right? This is what I was saying earlier, that it will be vengeance. And vengeance, while it might feel good in the moment or for a little while, ultimately it's hollow, right? That vengeance is not the same as justice. It is not ultimately satisfying. Dax is such the perfect character to deliver this message. It's almost like she's really the only one that could do it. Maybe we should pause here to explain a little bit of Dax's deal for people who are new to DS9. So Dax is a trill, which um, is a species, we'll call it that, for lack of a better term, that we've seen in The Next Generation before. But she is a humanoid host with a symbiont inside of her. And that symbiont has lived much longer than she has. She is just the most recent host. So this gives Dax a very beautiful young woman this wisdom of several lifetimes and confidence and just matter-of-factness through all that wisdom that she has gained. And in delivering this, it's like listening to your grandpa in prettier packaging or something. Like, you really believe they've lived through this. They know what they're talking about. There's weight to things that Dax says. Yeah, and Dax actually potentially important for Star Trek Discovery. Dax is uh, the name of the symbiont that is inside the humanoid whose name here is Jedzia. So it's Jedzia Dax. Dax's previous host, Curzon Dax, was a Federation diplomat who had something to do with negotiating peace with the Klingons. And so it is actually conceivable that we might encounter Curzon Dax either directly on screen in Discovery or through mention of something that, that, that our characters might hear about, which in itself would be very interesting. Uh, it would be so fascinating to meet him because, you know, stories are told about him all the time on Deep Space Nine, and he he is painted as quite the character. Yeah, I go back and forth on just exactly how much fan service I want out of Discovery, but I think I know, same. I think this is one that I would like to see. And and I think someday we might actually want to cover one of the important Deep Space 9 episodes about Dax uh and her relationship with with Klingons, which features a Klingon referred to as the albino that certainly has had me wondering about Voke. Wow. Yeah, no, Dax has a very interesting relationships to the Klingon, including a relationship with the Klingon, um, which we will not spoil, but those who know the show know what we're referencing. So yeah, Glenn, that's really fascinating. You know, it's I, I just had this thought that I almost want Rain Wilson to come back and like, just with some makeup, also play Curzon Dax, because <laughs> I think he would be <laughs> really good for the role. <laughs> And really fun. But I think we've really wandered away from the plot here. Yes, we have. And this conversation comes to a close really with Dax in imparting that wisdom and really asking this, this question or posing this question both to Kira and to us in the audience. And but we move now back to Ops, where Odo is reporting to Cisco that he has confirmed that Maritza was indeed merely a file clerk at Galatep, as he claims. But they also now have an image of Maritza that they've received from the Bajoran archives. 
But the person that they have in their cell doesn't look like the Maritza in this photograph. Rather, the person they have in their cell looks like the photograph of Golder Heel, the general in charge of the labor camp. And so now the plot really thickens. Yeah, this episode is full of twists and turns, and it made it really fun to watch because I hadn't seen the episode in a while, and I had forgotten how it all played out. So I was really like, what? Oh, wait, what? As we went through all of these things. So very, very intriguing episode. Yeah, this is not not the last twist that we're going to get. Uh, for now, Kira, uh, very angry, goes to interrogate Maritza again. And he doesn't deny that he is, in fact, Gol Darheel. And, and he even delights in recounting his horrific accomplishments, his, his grandstanding, really. And, and we get just absolute marvelous monologue from Harris Yulin here. I mean, this is a delight to watch, even if the things he's saying are are horrifying. The performance is so good. Yeah, no, delights is the right word. He has pure joy when talking about the horrors he committed. Well, before this scene ends, uh, Maritza, and I think we'll just keep calling him that for now, even though he's been identified as Galder Heel, just to keep it straight, I will continue to call him Maritza. Maritza insults Kira's service with the Shakar, which is the, the name of the Bajoran resistance, the sort of uh, military unit that Kira was a part of, or military organization that Kira was a part of. And, and after this really intense interaction, Kira needs a drink. So... She nurses a Maraltian sieve ale while she talks with Odo back in the security office. Yeah, that was a that was a whole bunch of words when they introduced this drink. It's blue. That's fun. Romulan ale is blue. Isn't that true? Yes, I think blue shows up nicely on the camera. What I kind of loved in this scene was um, she's kind of slouched back in her chair, you know, slumped down. And Odo comes in. He's like, here, this is going to help. And she's like, she says, what is it? As you noticed, which means she's never had this drink before. She doesn't know what it is. And she drinks it and has no reaction. And I have never once had a brand new alcohol and not kind of been taken aback by its flavor. Um, <laughs> I, she was like, okay. Oop, and then we're moving on. And I was expecting like almost – it wouldn't really match the tone of the episode, but for her to do like a spit take here and be like what is this god Ugh. and then odo to be like but it'll help you keep drinking it or something like that but instead she just drinks it and we move on but i thought that was kind of interesting yeah that's a really awesome observation because I, you know i was thinking about that moment where it's odo bringing her the drink as as showing us something about their relationship which is true you really astutely point to the fact that she's not even experiencing the drink that's not where she is she's not interacting with the world around her. She's just so in her own emotions right now. That's a great point, Glenn. And I think that that is probably what they're doing here because this, as basically I was just pointing out, this is a trope that we see on TV all the time. Like, here, drink this gross thing. It'll help. Ew, I don't want it. You know, but drink it anyway. So she's just like completely oblivious because she's angry she's empty you know she's empty of energy because she's been fighting so hard and is so confused so so yeah it was actually a really interesting touch yeah well she she explores you know the, the emotions that she's feeling while she kind of unburdens herself on odo and she is angry as you say and she even explicitly says that she hates maritza but the real crux of this scene or at least in terms of the plot is that kira mentions to odo that maritza insulted the shikar 
Odo, a very good and very hard-boiled detective after my own heart, jumps on this immediately. He says, something isn't right here. How could this man know anything about Kira's war record? Kira returns to Maritza to pose that question to him. And he dismisses her question by saying that, well, of course, he was an important person and he received a lot of intelligence reports, but that doesn't actually matter because he has some questions for her. But we cut away from the scene before that conversation continues. We are going to get back to it. We are going to hear the questions that Maritza has for Kira. Yeah, so some interesting misdirections, some mysterious misdirection here. Yeah, we take, a, we take a little break before we get back to this conversation. And in the infirmary, Odo tells Dr. Bashir that he's discovered that Maritza asked for information about Kira many months ago. And now he wants the doctor to use his credentials to access Maritza's medical records from his home planet. Well, Odo returns to security, and now he has his own conversation with Gol Dukat. And, and here Dukat says that Gol Darheel is dead, that he went to Darheel's funeral, and he knows where he's buried, that half of Cardassia was at the funeral. And if that's true, then the person that they have locked up in their cell is someone who is impersonating Darheel, not the actual Darheel. But Odo wonders why anyone would do that, especially knowing that it will certainly result in his execution. Especially when Maritza, you know, or whoever is in this cell would know about this very public funeral and that, you know, large swaths of Cardassian society know that Golder Heel is dead or think it anyway. Yeah, there are a lot of interesting choices being made here. But at this point, you know, I think there is still some mystery here. The question of well, maybe this actually is Galder Heel who had faked his, his death so that he could continue to live without being caught by Bajorans and punished for his crimes, just like Adolf Eichmann and other Nazis did. So that, that question is still here in our minds as we return to the conversation between Maritza and Kira. Uh, we come back kind of in media rest. The conversation has continued since we last saw them, and they're talking about Kira's own war record. Maritza gets Kira to admit that she killed Cardassian civilians when she was a soldier in the resistance. But Kira defends her actions by claiming, one, that she regrets those deaths. She regrets that some of the people she killed weren't Cardassian soldiers, but were Cardassian civilians. Husbands, wives, civilian officials, perhaps children. But also, it doesn't really matter because they were fighting for survival, so anything could be justified. Maritza immediately counters by saying that the Cardassians also were fighting for survival. They needed Bajor's resources to survive, and that everything he did at Galatep was out of love for his homeland. It was patriotism. It was the same patriotism that justifies Kira's killing of civilians. I thought this was a very interesting conversation, and I have a question for you about it, Glenn, but it, I think it's better suited to, to be asked after we get the end of the plot. I will look forward to that. I think there's going to be a lot to talk about when we finish up this episode. All right. So let's let's get let's get closer to the reveal so we can have those conversations. Right. So at this point, Odo interrupts their conversation. He pulls Kira into the corridor to tell her that he doesn't know why just yet, but the man that she's talking to wanted to be caught. And, and we jump now a little bit in time to Cisco's office, where Odo is reporting his latest findings to the commander. Kira is there, and, and Dr. Bashir will shortly uh, join the scene as well. So Odo is running down what he knows. He knows that this is not 
Galder Heel. He has seen Darheel's death certificate. And even if that was faked, which is a, a charge that Kira brings up, Darheel was on Cardassia on the day of the mining accident. And so the real Galder Heel would not actually have Kalanora syndrome. And this person does. Moreover, Maritza, the person who at least was identifying himself as Maritza earlier, put his affairs in order before leaving his homeworld. And also, Odo has discovered that he absolutely knew that the ship would stop at Deep Space Nine, and so he could have taken a ship that wouldn't put him anywhere in Bajor's legal jurisdiction, but he specifically chose to do that. Right, and the detail of putting your affairs in order uh, signals that he planned to die. Right, he's not coming back. He knows he's not coming back from this. But Kira is unconvinced by any of this because she's just heard him confess to the atrocities, right? But here, I think she's refusing to dispassionately evaluate the evidence in front of here. And here's where we're getting this conflict between vengeance and justice or, or seeing this quest for vengeance getting in the way of a similar quest for justice. And, and she's aware of it, too. And what I think is one of the most interesting themes running through this episode is that Kira moves from like, oh, no, no, I, I should be able to do it. I can be objective to I don't care. I don't care if I'm objective. I don't care if I'm refusing facts. Like the other stuff is more important. And she's she's very self-aware. Uh, and I think that makes us grapple with the point in a different way, in a more serious way, where we can't really dismiss her reasons as coming from a lack of awareness, but rather that she's making a choice and she has justification for that choice. And, and we need to hear what that is and see what we think about it as an audience. Yeah, I think this is really sort of the darkest place that Kira gets to in this episode. And we're about to see her start coming out. And this and this confrontation she has to have really with herself here is, is going to lead her uh, into into some character growth by the end of the episode. And and that that starts right now when Dr. Bashir arrives at Cisco's office to say that he has evidence that their prisoner, whether this is Maritza or Galdar Heel, has surgically altered his appearance. Well, now we return to the cells for one last conversation between Kira and Maritza. Kira confronts this man with the evidence that he is not actually Galdar Heel. He denies it, but he quickly loses his composure and he tries to get Kira to go away. I think this is some really good acting here. But Kira won't leave. And so he changes the subject back to his crimes so that he can grandstand again, right? And this is where he is confident in this, this guise of Gol Darheel. Though he's getting very quickly less confident. You can tell that the holes being poked in his story are starting to get to him. His acting isn't as good anymore. This really makes me marvel at being a professional actor, this performance here. Akira now accuses this man of actually being Maritza, as he initially identified himself. But this Cardassian man derides Maritza, describes Maritza's cowardice and his inability to tolerate the screams of the tormented Bajorans at Galatep. And when he is describing this, he breaks down and he weeps. And now the guise, the persona of Galderheel is gone. And he is Maritza, his, his true self. He says, you have no idea what it's like to see these horrors and to do nothing. Maritza's dead. He deserves to be dead for that cowardice. Almost more powerful than Maritza, you know, expressing regret for his inaction and his breaking down and his weeping, as you mentioned, 
is what Kira does next, which is drop the force field on the jail cell, go in there and sit down next to him to comfort him. And I thought it was the most powerful scene of the episode, especially because as she approaches him, he scurries away into the corner of the jail cell. He is afraid of her, almost like a, I guess, a scared child or a scared animal just cowering in the corner. And she gently approaches him to comfort him. And after everything we've seen in this episode, how moving is that? When faced with this person in front of her who clearly is traumatized by his association with perhaps his culpability in horrific brutality, she drops her anger and her quest for vengeance and has pity for this person. She realizes, right, I think at this moment she realizes that that it's not just the dead Bajorans or the the enslaved Bajorans who are the victims of this occupation, that that this Cardassian society that is focused on industrialized warfare, much like uh, Germany in the first half of the 20th century, is victimizing its own people as well. Which also, much like Germany in the first half of the 20th century, right? It's the same, same thing, the number of people that felt that they had no choice but to be implicit in the war crimes. And what you really see here, you know, we started the episode, especially with um, the the drunkard in the jail cell, um, and even Kira's first reactions is, you're Cardassian, you're inherently bad, right? And Cisco gives a check on that. Well, we don't know that yet. And they're both convinced, nope, Cardassian is bad. There is no nuance to this. And here we see remarkable nuance where Kira identifies in her victimhood with a Cardassian. And that's something that really, you know, 30 minutes ago in the episode didn't seem possible. Yeah, I mean, this is this is real character growth here. Uh, it's it's marvelous storytelling and, and just some beautiful writing and, and very powerful acting. And their interaction is not is not over. Like, we don't just end with this. Kira's letting Maritza go because he's not a war criminal. But Maritza doesn't want to go. He says, I have to be punished. We all have to be punished. He still wants to be put on trial as Galdar Heel so that Cardassia will have to admit its crimes against the Bajorans, because confronting their crimes is the only way that his society can heal, and presumably it's the only way that he can heal as well. But Kira says that what he's asking for is just another murder, and she's done murdering. Which is so interesting, because that's what she wanted at the beginning of the episode, and she did not view it as murder. Even just the narrative timeline, Kira wanted this 10 minutes ago, and she has seen Maritza's own pain, Maritza's own trauma. She has turned around completely on this question. Yeah, because this, you know, what one of the major things, um, it's silly for me to say this to you, Glenn, that, uh, that war does is dehumanizes people, right? And her view of the Cardassians was in this dehumanized or I guess decardassianized capacity. And now his humanity has been restored to her. And I think restored is a really good word because I think there is something kind of restorative for Kira in the bonding that happens between her and Mercy. Yes, this realization that they are both victims in, in the same way. And, and I think for Kira in particular, realizing that, that, well, of course it is true that people who are, shot and killed are our, our victims. But in this type of warfare, the 
people who are doing the shooting, the Cardassians who are doing the shooting, doing the brutalizing, were regular people who have been conscripted or drafted or socially compelled to join this military force without their informed consent, which is to say that this the society is turning people into killers and that that act of transforming regular people, civilians, into killers, into brutalizers, into the butchers of Galatep is to victimize them as well. Very eloquently put. I don't even think there's anything I could add to that, Glenn. I was just going to let that be because it was perfectly said. Before we leave this scene, and we still need to get really come to come to the conclusion of Kira's arc here, but I want to dwell a little bit on kind of the plot that is actually happening here. And to think about this in terms of the historical analog that we've been invoking throughout this episode, that what we have here is analogous to a German soldier arriving in Israel in 1955 and claiming to be Himmler or someone else high up in the perpetration of the Holocaust so that he can publicly be put on trial. We still have one more scene in this episode, and this this is really going to cement for us Kira's emotional and moral and ethical journey in, in this story here. On the promenade, Kira and Odo are escorting Maritza to a transport that is going to take him home. But the Bajoran who we met in the prison cell earlier, this drunk Bajoran, comes up behind them and stabs Maritza, who collapses to the floor and dies. Kira asks the Bajoran why he did that when Maritza, this Cardassian, was innocent. He wasn't a war criminal. And the answer, of course, is that he's a Cardassian. And that's reason enough. Akira hesitates before she responds, but she eventually says, no, it isn't. And that's where our episode ends, with Kira hearing her own sentiments thrown back at her and rejecting them. Yeah, yeah. This was really powerful and felt really unfair, you know, and I, I followed and mirrored Kira on this journey throughout the episode of being behind her and her passion and slowly coming to temper it a little bit with neutrality as much as could be gained and then bonding with Maritza and changing my mind and seeing his humanity and what a tragic loss to have to relive right when you feel like you've made progress. Yeah, this ending, which is is pretty bleak, serves to show to Kira that just because she's had this epiphany, that she's gone on this emotional journey and come out the other end of it for the better, no one else has. Her society has not, right? That there is still work to be done. That this anger still seethes inside other Bajorans and, and gnaws at them. And I think here she's realizing that Bajor is is crippled by this anger, perhaps, and thinking that she should do something about it. Yeah, you know, because they make frequent references in this episode, which is not something we covered in the recap, but to the fact that the Bajoran government has not quite rebuilt itself. Yeah, that's right. It's still a provisional government. It's been years since the occupation, but they still have a provisional government that doesn't really know what it's doing, doesn't maybe understand what its function is or how it's supposed to operate. Uh, and there's a lot of confusion. It seems like the only thing that Bajor knows about itself, the only thing that Bajorans know about themselves is that they have been victimized by Cardassians and they're mad about it. 
Yeah. And so I think that it was really interesting writing and storytelling to kind of pepper in these mentions of the provisional government of a, of a Bajoran society that is not quite rebuilt. But to tell us the most most of the narrative through one character's experience of trying to rebuild her own narrative, and then to close it with this bigger kind of societal question that you're posing, which is, I think Kira kind of realizes that a lot of the work to be done isn't really about herself, but is about giving the same restoration that she has gained through this process to her society, to her culture, to her people on a broader scale. And the difficulty of that task that she is physically confronted with here. And this, in some ways, this is really the the central theme of Deep Space Nine as a show. I mean, this is this episode here is coming just at the end of the first season. So there are still six more seasons to go. And one of the things that Deep Space Nine does so well is that it makes Bajor, makes the Bajoran people, and also makes the Cardassian people characters of the show, that we see these cultures, these societies on a journey. And they, they, they have character arcs throughout Deep Space Nine. And we're going to see these issues and other issues raised again and again. They're going to have to grapple with their shared past and what that means for them together, what that means for their cultures individually, and what that means for the the individual people within those cultures, how they can move on from this brutal history that they share. And not just how can they move on, which I think is what Kira is grappling with, but how should they move on? which is what a lot of the other characters and narratives in the episode are grappling with and how to even, you know, if you even came to a decision about those two things, how would you square them? And, you know, Kira herself is not completely there yet. We're going to see her continue to grapple with these questions from time to time. But on the whole, she is going to have a real interesting, very compelling, very moving arc in her relationships with individual Cardassians uh, as this show progresses. It is one of the things that makes Deep Space Nine uh, such a powerful TV show and, and such a worthy entry in the Star Trek canon. Yeah, I'm very grateful, as always, for our discussion because I I learned a lot and I saw a lot in this episode that I hadn't seen kind of just passively watching it on my own. So I hope listeners feel the same, that we've brought something to this narrative for them. Yeah, same here, Valerie. I was really excited to have this conversation with you to, to, to see how you read this. And, and I think I've come out the other end of this with an even greater appreciation for this episode, and especially a real appreciation for the moral and ethical questions that it raises. And I hope that this is one case when our listeners will take advantage of our forum and pop over there and let us know how they feel about this these questions, in particular this issue of of, of vengeance versus justice. Um, whose side are you on, or, or are you on anybody's side in this argument? What's the nuance that you find there? I would really love to to talk with our listeners about this. Yeah, that would be a fascinating discussion that can continue on the forum. Um, though I, I fear I will have to step into my role of bringer of fun and and say, reminder, we do have a lyrics contest <laughs> going on the forum now, apparently. And also, uh, not to disappoint listeners, we've yes, got Yes, that's right. It was my turn for this episode to come up with a cocktail. And this was no small task, just because this is a bleak episode about very serious questions. And I was not about to come up with a cocktail, you know, about uh, Bajoran genocide or Cardassian war crimes. Does this mean that you're not doing a episode wide drink? 
<laughs> yes, that's right. Not an episode yes. wide drink this time. It really faced with the question of of how to how to incorporate this extreme bit of levity that we have into an episode that is so serious. And I took the easy way out, which is to ask myself, what is it that Major Kira is drinking in Odo's office? What is a, what is Moraltian <laughs> sieve ale? So this is kind of a gimmick drink in that I try to recreate the, the visual that we get on screen, the, the color here. So, what I have done, and I, I went through a couple of iterations of this, and this is the one that I, I finally settled on. This had sort of the best flavor, I think. But the crux of the drink is blue curacao, uh, which is going to give us that that color, that light blue color that we see on screen. So you use a quarter ounce of blue curacao, uh, half an ounce of lemon. So you get an orange and a lemon flavor together. We're also going to put some grapefruit bitters in there, so a third citrus. Uh, but the the base spirit of the drink is tequila, and you're going to use three ounces of tequila, which then also has this agave fruit flavor there. So this is really a, a fruit-flavored drink that I, I think is actually quite refreshing and, and, and actually goes down perhaps too quickly for as much tequila as is in there. <laughs> yeah, three ounces is a lot. I I do wonder, though... I'm not sure that much tequila ever makes anyone feel better. It depends on how college was for you, I suppose. <laughs> it totally does. It totally does. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting because if I go back to this scene where she's drinking it and I think of it as as what you just described being in the glass, I almost want her to like be like, ah, and like smile into the camera or something as a reaction to drinking it um, rather than her quite somber reaction. Though I suppose if she didn't react to something so bright and citrusy, then, then she really was in a bad place. Now that we know what she has in her hand, this really reinforces that that reading of her disinterest in what's actually happening around her because she's so focused on her own emotions. So maybe go fix yourself one of those. And uh, if you enjoyed listening to us talk about this episode, pop on over to the Patreon feed and uh, take a look at becoming a subscriber. We would be extremely excited to have you and grateful for your support. Yeah, we'd really appreciate it. And of course, it, it makes the show possible. It uh, keeps us going and really would give us the opportunity to do more stuff, which we would we would love to do for you. But with that said, I think that's going to do it for this episode. We're looking forward to the next episode of Discovery next week. And until then, I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Valerie Hoagland. And as always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. And until next time, stay spacey.